0: we're looking at Hebrews chapter 10, this really is the high point of the sermon, of the epistle, where he is driving home uh, everything that he has been explaining to us already. He's been teaching us about the significance of the Old Testament signs and sacrifices. He's been teaching us about the theological significance of... Melchizedek, and <clears throat> he's been warning us of apostasy and so forth. Now he comes, chapter 10, he bring, gathers all of that information, all of that imagery together and drives it home, just one uh, paragraph after another, he is repeating, once for all, once for all, once for all. <clears throat> but he's also addressing these Christians who are uh, either in the middle of of uh, some persecution, they are—they have not yet resisted unto blood. He says in some place. So, not many are being martyred, but they're beginning to feel the heat already of opposition, and they're tempted to to give up. They're tempted to say, "This is just too hard. We can go back. We can meld into into our old practices and just swim with the tide, and things will be a lot easier." Uh, we'll keep our finances, we'll keep our jobs, we'll keep our families together, keep our freedom. And uh, he says, you must not do that if you turn away and look for some other means of salvation. There is no other sacrifice for sin, but you're not going to be able to do that by yourself either. Yes, you need Christ, but you need Christ followers with you. You can't do it alone. So he comes from, we've been in the heavenlies, we've been looking, we've been walking around, checking out the architecture, using our memories from Old Testament architecture. He's showing us the real architecture that is in heaven where the final once-for-all sacrifice has occurred, where Jesus actually is as the priest interceding for us, where we actually are intersecting with God. And now he comes back down to earth and he says, but God hasn't left you to your imagination. He has put outposts. Of this heavenly tabernacle, in a place near you, and it's called the church. Do you, do you realize how desperately you need the local church? Here's what he. Drives home when you're when you're thinking about what you should tell. What in the world am I going to tell people who are facing persecution, facing losing everything? They're despondent. They're desperate. They don't know about their forgiveness. What do you What do you say to them? Read that book. Go to Amen Bible Study. Do this or that. Those can be helps, but they're not the local church. The single greatest genius of God for endurance in the Christian life is what happens in the gathered local church in corporate worship. Let me prove it to you. Let's begin reading in chapter 10, verses 11 through 25. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies could be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord... I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you open our eyes to see your inestimable goodness, that you did not leave us alone to walk this Life, walk the Christian life to finish the race. You you, yes, you gave us the Holy Spirit. And you <clears throat> gave us the Holy Spirit in the temple of our body. But you have also told us that the Holy Spirit finds communion with Himself. The Holy Spirit draws us into communion with other believers. And the Holy Spirit especially inhabits the praises of his people. The Holy Spirit especially inhabits corporate worship. And there your word tells us that things occur that we cannot objectify, can't can't figure out, can't account for. More than we could ever ask or imagine because your glory is at work in the church. Would you help us, Lord, today as we look at this passage, as we look at the things that challenge us as we look at our needs? Would we also look at our churches and ask, is this a church where I am being shaped by Christ, or do I have a church where I can be shaped by Christ, and am I neglecting it? Oh, Lord, have your way with us, encourage us. And shape us. today we pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. God's men said together, "Amen." When I was a kid, I had excuse me, I had lots of hobbies. I could still have lots of hobbies if other people were paying for them. But one of my hobbies was rock collecting. And uh, I, I wanted one of every kind of rock. I was fascinated with rocks. And, and then I found out about something called a rock tumbler, where you could, you could make those rough rocks smooth like the specimens you see in a, in a museum. So I asked for that for Christmas one time. I had a rock tumbler from Sears, probably came from this catalog store down here. And uh, you put the rocks, you take a handful of rocks and you put them in a, in a drum and it's, it's, uh, it's lined with a kind of sandpaper, it's more than that, but it's, it's a rough surface. And you have to put enough rocks in it to make it work because one rock tumbling by itself doesn't work. You have to put enough rocks because there's a combination of the rocks rubbing against themselves as well as rubbing against this, this standard so that if it rolls long enough, the combination of being ground by this standard drum on the outside together with being rubbed, the rough edges being knocked off by, its, by their fellow rocks, you run it long enough, those rocks come out glistening, they come out smooth. And the writer of Hebrews is describing something similar. This is what happens in the church. That God has not left us alone, but he has given us a local, what what does he call the church? A body of Christ. Jesus objectively demonstrates his presence by the gathered church, by the body of Christ. His spirit comes truly among us, so his spirit working by and with the word and the sacrament is accomplishing our shaping And shaping us into the image of Christ. But he says also that shaping can't occur ordinarily without your being shaped with your fellow rocks, your fellow image bearers of God, your fellow Christians in whom the Spirit dwells. And as the Spirit communes with himself, he is bringing the life and teaching and encouragement of Christ to you as well as the Spirit bringing that to you from the outside. Our text tells us that we have this basic need. We have, and our, our whole whole book of Hebrews has told us, we have this very basic need that we must be, we need to be shaped by Christ. We need to be reshaped. We are fallen. We have fallen not only from our communion with God, we've fallen from our image of Christ we've fallen in our humanity and we need to be reshaped by Christ not just to be a christian but to be the kind of human beings that we're called to be who we were created to be so this text tells us by putting this at the very end here is the con- at the end of our section this this hard-hitting conclusion Quit forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. You must be assembling together so that you might be encouraged to good deeds and so that you remember that the end is drawing near. If you're going to be shaped by Christ, you must faithfully attend corporate worship. Now, let me say a word about the definition of a church. (laughs) What is a church? What is corporate worship? Well, it's not something I'm going to invent. It's something we gather up from Scripture and something that has been, this definition has been gathered into statements of faith through the centuries. So we have, for instance, at this church, a Westminster Confession of Faith. It's not the only creed. There are lots of uh, very sound creeds and they can basically give a similar definition but our Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 25 that a true church is one in which, number one, the gospel is taught and embraced. A church is one, a church of Jesus Christ is number one, in which the gospel is taught and embraced. Number two, it's a church in which the sacraments are served or ordinances are are served faithfully, biblically. The Lord's Supper, baptism. And number three, where worship is offered, where people gather and worship. And number four, it's not found in our confession, but it's found in a theologian who means a lot to us, named John Calvin, and other reformers as well. It is a place where discipline is faithfully administered. Discipline is faithfully administered. Now, discipline can have a positive and a negative aspect to it. Discipline is not only is the gospel taught, but it is impressed on people. People are discipled in it. They're shown where it applies in their practical lives. And then the negative side of it is they are held accountable to their profession in Christ, that we make a pledge to one another and say, when you When you pledge to join our church, we also pledge to be faithful to you, and that means that we're going to love you too much, that when you're heading off in a direction that is going to be destructive to yourself and to others, we're going to meddle in your business. We're going to confront you lovingly, patiently, but we'll up that confrontation until you repent or until you say, I don't want this anymore. It's a volunteer society, so you, have to, you know what you sign up for when you come, and if you don't want a group of Christians meddling in your business and helping you finish to the end, you can join another church that uh, doesn't practice that, but we believe those are the characteristics of a true gospel-centered church. The gospel is taught and embraced. The gospel is evidenced or objectified in true the ordinances, the sacraments being served, There is corporate worship in the name of Christ, and there is discipline. I do want you to think about that, brothers, and I want you to think about your own churches because amen is not a church. We teach the gospel, but we don't hold you accountable to embrace it. We we welcome anybody here, and you can come and learn, but that's all we do is teach. We don't serve the sacraments and never will. And we don't worship, we sing a song, but we don't go through a, gosp- a, a patterned gospel service, which we'll talk about later, and we don't practice discipline. Please don't let amen be a substitute for you for church. Your Sunday school class is not a church. There's no corporate worship. There may be some discipline if you have a, a certain kind of class, but it's not a church. And your, your family is not a church. Your lake house is not a church. This one's going to hurt. <laughs> Duck hunting is not a church. You can commune with God, but it's not a church. Uh, you, need, you need a church. It doesn't have to be Second Presbyterian. But it must be a church where the gospel is preached and embraced that the bible the word of god is taken seriously and that is preached as god's word it must be a place where the sacraments are taught and administered as those those embraces of god that follow on the on the on the uh, word of god it must be a place where worship occurs not worship of a man but worship of god and must be a place where you're held accountable Well, this is what Christ provides for us in his wisdom, and he does four things for us in our participation in the body of Christ in the church. He brings perfection. He brings brings forgiveness. He brings confidence. He brings confession. Let's look at how they fall out in this text. First of all, verses 11 through 14, our text tells us, that he carries out this work, Jesus Christ carries out this work through his Holy Spirit in the church of perfecting us. And, And perfecting means conformity, conforming us to his image, reshaping us, repairing us, restoring us to what we were originally created to be. He says that with several phrases here. First of all, he talks about the the um, priest, the Old Testament priest who stood daily in the temple. And we've looked at that before, that he stood there daily because he could never offer enough sacrifices finally to accomplish forgiveness or to achieve uh, confidence or a clear conscience. Now, Old Testament saints, of course, were forgiven, they could find forgiveness for their sins, but it was only by looking through those sacrifices and saying, those sacrifices aren't saving me. What they're doing is telling me that God has a last lamb coming for me, and he's, he's, he's the Messiah. He's going to be the Son of God. So by faith, the Old Testament saints would reach forward into that future covenant and grab hold of Christ. And the Spirit would enable them to do that. We'll learn about that in chapter 11, where Moses, long before Christ was born, but it says Moses considered the riches of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. Abraham believed Christ. And then he tells us with this phrase that Jesus has done for us, this phrase, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the day of redemption, he tells us by that phrase that Christ provided for us what we could never provide for ourselves and what the priest could never have provided for us. Jesus Christ sat down. He sat down because there was no... His job was finished. He'd worked himself out of a job. He'd worked all the priests out of a job. He sat down. We call that in theology the session of Christ. The... The... Official sitting down at the right hand of God. He sat down to symbolize there are no more sacrifices to be made. The session of Christ. By the way, that's why we call our elder meetings in the Presbyterian tradition the session. No elder or pastor has authority in and of himself. You can bump into me in the hall and you can ask me to make a decision. I might make a decision, but it's really irrelevant until I am seated. With the rest of my brother elders, and we make a decision together. No one elder can make a decision on his own. We are seated together. Well, the seating of Christ is a, is a the session of Christ is a mark of his finished work and his authoritatively saying, it is finished. Then look at this other phrase, the final phrase <clears throat> of verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, that's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Are we perfected or we are in process? Yes, that's the answer. We are perfected as God views us eternally. He views us through Christ. That means... If we are in Christ, if we said, take my sin, substitute for my sin your righteousness, we can die at any moment and appear justified before the throne of God. Now, that's good news for... That was really good news when I first heard it because I was initially saved in a theological tradition that said you're constantly having to choose Christ. And you're constantly having to repent of your sin... And be effectively resaved, and so I'd spend the night at a buddy's house, and the and the and the, the dad of the family who was a, a leader in this church I was a part of, would come to me right before we were while we were groggy, right before we go to sleep, and he said, "Okay, let's confess our sins, so that if you die in the middle of the night, you won't go to hell." Well, I mean, you just cuddle up on your pillow and go to sleep like a baby. Somebody says like something like that to you. <clears throat> He was missing this idea that when we are united to Christ, it's Christ's righteousness that we're hidden in. We are perfected legally, judicially. <clears throat> but we are being sanctified. We could say we are perfected and we're being perfected. We are conformed to Christ as God sees us eternally in Jesus, and we are being made really and truly like Christ in our daily sanctification. One theologian says the Christian life is the process of becoming who you are. So where does that perfecting occur? Well, he's going to tell us at the end of the passage. That sanctifying work, that process of becoming more like Jesus occurs Yes, as you read your Bible, as you have your personal devotions and so forth, but it occurs more than any other place and in any other way through the church. As you are coming into corporate worship with brothers and sisters in Christ, and Christ is putting you through that rock tumbler, shaping you himself And shaping you through your brothers and sisters. Our Westminster Confession is so strong in that same chapter that I quoted earlier. It says, outside of the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation now uh, we have to understand the way salvation is used not only in the confession but really in the in the bible we've noticed it here salvation is not just that initial walking down the aisle salvation in scripture describes the whole process the whole process that finalizes in heaven And so he's saying it's not ordinarily possible for somebody to grow as they must in conformity to Christ such that they finish well at the end without the church. Is it extraordinarily possible? Sure, there are foxhole conversions, there are deathbed conversions, but that's no way to live. The joyful way to live is... The wonderful way to live, the fulfilling way to live, is in the community of Christ experiencing all of the blessings and benefits and the shaping that occurs in the worship, that, uh, corporate worship that occurs in the daily life of a Christian. <clears throat> Some of us take for granted what the church does for us, and I can do that too. But a couple of years ago, this, <clears throat> this uh, incident struck me. My youngest daughter is, is uh, just turned 15, and uh, she's been in, like all of our kids, she didn't have any choice but to be in the church from her earliest days. And uh, from her earliest days, she was dragged into worship. She was put in Sunday school. She was taken through the catechism. She was surrounded by uh, the, the, the family of God. Our, our biological families are not so involved in our lives, so the church has always been our family. The church has been our brothers and sisters and our fathers and mothers and our grandparents. And uh, <clears throat> so my youngest daughter uh, had a little friends she was progressing through school with, and one of those little friends in about the second grade or so, his family uh, changed churches. The church had gotten into, uh, it had it, been a good church at one time, but they had their, their mission had become just telling people to, you know, make sure you pay your bill at the country club and and uh, mark your ball before you take it off the green and uh, make sure you, you pay your dues at the symphony and uh, help little ladies cross the street and vote Republican, things like that. And the little kids were told the same, be good, do this, don't do that. And the, 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 the mother of the family said, you know, we're missing something, and she, they came to our church, and for several years they were in our church. And so my Caroline was in Sunday school class with this little boy and others, and, and as he was immersed in this gospel-centered ecosystem where he's being taught God's Word in Sunday school, he's hearing it in worship, he's singing it, or he's hearing it sung, he's singing it, he's hearing it prayed. He's surrounded by people who are living in rough consistency with what he's hearing and seeing. She sees him tr- change even as a second grader to a seventh grader in that discipleship. And then the parents missed their friends at the other church. They went back to the other church, and over the course of a couple of years, she saw those things fall away, and she said, he's forgotten what he learned. He's melding in with everybody else. He's making poor choices. When, when, we're, in, when we're in history class or science class, or it's not just... Bible knowledge he has. It's a worldview that he's missing that puts all of that knowledge into an organized perspective. And that's a perspective, that's the evaluation of a 13 year old looking at a peer. You cannot begin to calculate the power, the perfecting power of gospel centered, holistic discipleship that occurs in the community of Christ and is and is woven into one's life week after week after week. Now, here's what else he says. These things are not so new to us, but he says it is in corporate worship also that we are are confirmed in our forgiveness. Verses 15 through 18, look at these phrases that bring out this point. First of all, the Holy Spirit bears witness. You see that in verse 15, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. Now, if you look at your footnote of where that text comes from, it comes from the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah doesn't say, oh, the Holy Spirit told me this. He just says, I'm telling you, this is the covenant that God will make with you. But the writer of Hebrews, and we've seen this on a couple of, in a couple of places already, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, it's the Spirit who actually said that. He said it through Jeremiah, but it's the Spirit who said it. Now, this is just a very important concept for us to get, that the Bible is God's Word. It's written by these various authors, yes, but the Bible everywhere testifies to itself that it is written by God. You can say you disagree with that. You can say, I just don't believe that the Bible is inspired by God. I believe it's has errors. I'm not sure it's trustworthy. Well, you can believe that, but you would have to call the Bible a liar about itself because that's what the Bible says about itself. That's what Jesus says about the Bible. That's what the Old Testament writers say about what they're writing. It's what the New Testament say, writers say about their own writing. It's what Peter says about the writings of Paul, that they are the Word of God. So the Word of God is what we study and and in a A gospel-centered church, a true church believes, is convicted, is convinced that this Bible that we have is the inerrant and infallible Word of God, that God spoke it. And if God spoke it, we are beholden to it. But it's also comforting, isn't it, that it is God who tells us in this Word we are forgiven. Every week in our worship service, as a worship service should, every worship service should, uh, in any tradition, should call someone to to confess his or her sins. You can do it in any number of ways, but it's just as important when we confess our sins that we're told we're forgiven. And we never say, we never have a pastor stand up and say, "Have you confessed your sins?" Okay, you are forgiven, because we don't have that authority. But we do stand up and say, if you have have confessed your sins, this is what the Bible says. God says, and we read a text that assures of forgiveness. Here's another phrase that we're taught in, in coming into corporate worship regularly, habitually, we hear that we are forgiven of sins, and we can't hear it enough. Because it's nearly impossible to believe, and every week we're reminded of our sins and we come into corporate worship and God tells us in a way that is more convincing than in any other context you are forgiven furthermore look at this, uh, <clears throat> look at this phrase, "I will put my laws on their hearts I'll remember their sins no more." This is the quotation from Jeremiah he's talking about the, the characteristic of the covenant of the New Testament. Now listen, here: the, the, the God is always saved in the same way. We've made that point over and over. You're always saved by faith in Christ, whether Christ is coming or Christ has already come. And uh, you are always made a believer by the Spirit enabling you to believe and continuing His work in you. What happens in the New Testament is the things that were true in the Old Testament become even clearer. So in the Old Testament, yes, God had to write his covenant on people's hearts and make them obedient. The only time David was ever obedient is when the Spirit made him obedient. The only time Moses was obedient, the only explanation is that God made him obedient through the Spirit. Now he tells us it's going to be even clearer. I'm going to make it even clearer as I pour out the Spirit in a a very visible way at Pentecost. As I talk about the Spirit more in the New Testament, it's going to be clear that the way you are, the way you live as a Christian is by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. And the way it is manifested in your life that you are a forgiven person is that you live like Christ. Now, listen to me very carefully. I did not say that the way you earn your forgiveness is to be obedient. I said the way you are obedient is to be forgiven. You will never be obedient. You'll never start down the road of conformity to Christ until Christ first moves into your life, and he only moves into your life by you receiving him, by saying, I can't do this. I cannot be who you want me to be. You come to the end of yourself, and you say, I cannot by all of my decency and by all of my good fathering and all of my good, my good uh, benevolence and so forth, I can't attain the holy righteous standard that you have put there. I give up. Make me righteous. And Jesus moves in and he says, you are forgiven. I am going to begin to live out my life in you. And as you live out the Christian life, you prove that you are one who has been forgiven as being forgiven. And you learn that. You have that experience in corporate worship. Not only do you hear it being taught from the scriptures and experience it in the hymns and prayers, but the other the people of God are there to convince you that God's work in you is certain and God's work in you will not cease. My grandfather uh, <clears throat> lived over in uh, Jonesboro. And I uh, had an air, uh, airplane business, and he was a rough character. Uh, he was a bad dude for most of his life. Uh, if it could be done, he did it. And um, I, one day, my, my grandmother was a very faithful believer from her earliest days. And one day, he took one step too far, and she said, that's it. Uh, I'm I'm leaving. Now, that was scandalous in those days. And uh, uh, it it broke him. He was mocking her faith and all kinds of things. It broke him. He literally fell on his knees, and he said, please, forgive me. I'll do anything to keep you. I'll do anything to keep you. And she said, oh, anything? Yes, anything. Go to church with me we're we're leaving in an hour now when he darkened the door of the church it uh, nearly shut the place down and he knew it was going to be that kind of dramatic entry but he he did and the lord saved him the lord didn't perfect him very much before he died but he made he made some progress he made some progress but he asked me one time, he said, I want you to, I want you to use your calligraphy. And uh, some of you seeing my writing today would never believe it. One time I did calligraphy. But it, he, I want you to use your calligraphy. I want, you to do, I want you to write this passage for me. And he took out this little piece of paper out of his wallet and unfolded it. It was like an ancient manuscript barely holding together. It was from Philippians 3 forgetting what lies behind, I press on to the goal, of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And uh, I, said, uh, I said, what what does this mean? He said, shut up and write the verse down. I said, okay. So, so I had to ask my grandmother, what does, what, what does this mean? And she said, well, it means this. He said, you know, your grandfather wasn't much of a churchgoer before he started with me. And uh, yes, I've heard, I said. And And uh, he had a very guilty conscience, as he would remember all the things that he did in the past. And one Sunday, he came to church, and he was shuffling through church. His head was down like this, and on Sundays, he would especially remember how bad he had been. And uh, there's a dear man named Ed Cherry, who had taken my grandfather under his wing, and he had been a Christian for a long time, and he... He took him aside, and George was his name. George, what's wrong? Ed, I'm just, remembering, I'm just remembering my past. He said, come here, let's look at the Bible together. He opened it to Philippians 3, read that Verse. And that kind of thing happened over and over and over again. To the end of his life, he had to be told, he had to hear, he had to sing, he had to listen on albums to the fact that he was forgiven once and for all in Jesus Christ. It couldn't have happened on his own by himself. Forgiveness is what we experience in the church. Two more things, confidence. Verses 19 to 22. We enter the holy place, blood, the blood of Jesus. That's where we intersect. That is the actual place where unholy people like us can intersect with a holy God. Jesus makes that sacrifice in that place, wherever that place is. He is at the right hand of God, telling God, please. You must listen to the prayers of these people. You must be with them. Stay with them. Don't give up on them. Remember, these wounds have earned it. In that place, he qualifies us. He's a great priest, and because he is a great priest, we must draw near to him. That tells us not only how we draw near to him, how we're qualified to draw near to him. It tells us that he wants us to draw near to him as a father wants his children near to him. And then he says, uh, you are sprinkled clean, your body is washed with pure water. Now, I know that reminds you of baptism, and it's appropriate to remind you of baptism, but it first would remind this Jewish reader of the cleansing ceremonies that occurred in the Old Testament. And when something was impure in the Old Testament, the way it was cleansed ceremonially was to pour or sprinkle water or blood on it. And then throughout the Old Testament, sprinkling and pouring is related to the Holy Spirit. You can just look at the comparison between Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. In Acts chapter 8, verses 32 to 36, remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He's, he's leaving Jerusalem and he's, he's reading Isaiah 53 and he wonders who this suffering servant is. And God brings Philip to him and he says, uh, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, No, somebody tell me. He said, It's talking about Christ. And as soon as he receives Christ, he said, What prevents me from being baptized? He's out in the middle of the desert. There can't be a pool deep enough to immerse him in, by the way. But uh, there's enough water there. And he says, I, what would keep me from being baptized? What in the world, where in the world did he get baptism from Isaiah 53? It's because he didn't have numbers on his chapters. He is reading the whole thing. In chapter 52, it says, I will sprinkle the nations. They will be clean." sprinkling, pouring, always symbolizes the Holy Spirit coming down and cleansing. And he says, when you experience those <clears throat> sacraments, when you visualize, when you look at those teaching moments of the sacraments in the worship service, it's reminding you that your forgiveness is just as certain as that water that's coming down. It's just as certain as the taste of that bread or that cup. It didn't make that it doesn't make it happen. They're not magical, but God graciously stoops to us and gives us these little flannel graphs, these little lessons to say, look, I want you to know how certainly you have been forgiven. It gives us confidence. And finally, we're told it, it uh, produces a confession in us. In corporate worship, he says, I don't want you to neglect the gathering of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. Because if you neglect your gathering together, this is what's going to happen. You're going to forget God's past faithfulness. You've got to hear it over and over and over. You're going to forget it. And you need to hear it. You need to hear it from what is preached and sung. You need to hear it from other Christians who say, God has always been faithful to me. I have to hear it as a pastor Week after week, I have to hear it as people come up to me and say, you know, preacher, that is true. I'm 50 years older than you. Well, let's see, not anymore. I'm 30, 40, 40 years older than you are. And I'm telling you, God has never been unfaithful. What you're saying is true. I have to hear it. You have to hear it. And if we're not in corporate worship, regularly reminded of God's word, the way the world is set up, the way history is is being is unfolded we will forget that this world is not all there is we will forget that there is an appointed end as the text says we will forget that hope that is set before us let me give you quickly an illustration of that from the old testament psalm 73 in psalm 73 asaph says you know, my foot had almost stumbled. I, um, I I I started looking at people around me. And I, uh, I, I I just I just got put out with you, God. I looked at people around me and and and, and the, the boys who are ungodly are getting all the dates. I look at my peers, they have the big houses. They're getting the job promotions. Everything's going right for them, and they're ungodly. They don't regard you at all. And I'm trying to walk with you, and I'm not succeeding. And then he says, my foot had almost stumbled. I almost gave up. But then verse 16, I thought, how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. You must every week, week after week after week after week, go back to the sanctuary of God and have the reset button pushed. Be reminded of God's faithfulness from the past, his hope set for you in, the com- in, in what is coming. Sometimes I say, and it's, been, it's a phrase I learned from an old missionary, that in corporate worship, God is cutting grooves deeply into our brains and hearts so that we are permanently imprinted with the truth of the gospel. Some of you might relate better to, he is creating muscle memory so that in times of when, when all else fails, we naturally revert to what we have been trained to do, and we are not trained naturally to act out of a Christian mind. We're not trained naturally to live for Christ in every situation. It doesn't occur naturally. It only come comes from weekly training. Sometimes you can tally up. One of my elders one time took Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule. You've read that about it takes 10,000 hours to be to be, uh, to be an expert at something, 10,000 hours hitting a golf ball or 10,000 hours doing a surgery, whatever, sometime tally up how long it's going to take you to put in 10,000 hours in corporate worship and ask yourself, can you do it only by going once a month or even on Sunday morning? And you only have so much time on this earth to prepare for engaging wholeheartedly and without regret in the worship that is to characterize all of eternity. When you come to corporate worship in a gospel centered church, you hear every week not only the truth, but you experience the truth being lived out in the pattern of a worship service where God calls you to worship like He's called you to Christ. And you respond and he makes you aware of your sin and you confess and he tells you that you are forgiven and you believe and you show gratitude. And then he uh, opens your heart to his word and he teaches you and you respond with gratitude. And then he sends you forth with the benediction and says, you can do this because I'm going with you. And you're there with Other people, and you're reminded, I am not, I felt alone all week this week. I feel alone in my family. I feel alone in my business. I feel alone. But I, surrounded by these worshipers, I know I'm not alone. The gathered church corporate worship should be the center of your life. It should be that which drives you, that for which you long every week, and that which drives you into the week to come. I was convicted by the example of a young couple in my church, the church I just came from, a couple, if you looked at them from the outside, would look like a typical East Memphis couple. They must be happy. They have nice cars. They have a nice house. Their kids go to private school. They're both uh, successful professionals and so forth. But when you take the cover off, they're like many East Memphis couples as well as West Memphis couples that are, were rotten on the inside. And they were chasing all the wrong things. It didn't look like they were chasing. It looked like they were, they, were, they were living a normal life and even a little bit below their means. And then, they, and then they got the dream job, the dream job promotion, big job, which would take them an hour and a half away from us. And uh, there they would finally be able to buy that house that they always wanted in the perfect neighborhood with the perfect school. Moved over there, and six months later they were back in my office. And they said, we're trying to figure out a way to move back here. A year later, I said, you know, don't do anything too rashly. But but a year later, they're saying the same thing. We're trying to figure out a way to move back here. Why? The job's not working. The job's going great. Why? The house's not great. The the house is perfect. What we figured out is we can do without the perfect job. And we can do without the house of our dreams. And we can do without a school that is less than, than pristine. But we cannot do without a gospel-centered church. So we are moving back here, whether we have a job or not. If we have to rent a hovel, we're moving back here because we cannot live without the gospel as we experience it in our church. Now, again, I said, you better think that through again because you're coming back to our church. (laughs) No, no, no. We've learned it. May God give us all a thirst for the grace that he so much longs to give us that it reorients all of the priorities of our lives. And he is able to put us in a place where he can give us concentrated doses of the gospel and fellowship with Christ week after week after week.